Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. This is where we look at various nutrition and fitness-related topics through the lens of application. We want to give you practical takeaways so that you can create your healthiest, best self backed by knowledge. Now, on to the episode with your host, Coach Lisa. Hello, and welcome back to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. My name is Lisa, I'm your host, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Lauren Colenso-Semple. She has a PhD in Integrative Physiology. She is a writer for the Mass Research Review, and in her research, she likes to investigate the sex-based differences in training, things like how the menstrual cycle affects our training, and so much more. I'm super excited to have her on today, so welcome to our podcast, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. I would love for you to just share a little bit in, in the sense of how you got to where you are today, um, physically, but also just in terms of your research. What brought you um, to this kind of field of interest and um, what is your current role there? Sure. I started out with a degree, an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I was subsequently actually working in business development, uh, just not really sure what I wanted to do, to be honest. And the the gym was a, a big part of my life at the time. I, I was always really physically active growing up, and I ended up doing some group fitness teaching just for fun. And I it, it kind of spiraled from there. I wasn't really aware that there was um, research on strength training. And when I learned more about that, I thought it was you know, really interesting and really exciting. And I, long story short, I ended up leaving my business development job and working as a personal trainer and a group fitness instructor full-time. And I volunteered in a lab to sort of understand more about what doing that research was like, and I really enjoyed it. So I ended up going back to school, getting a master's degree, um, and, you know, wanted more. So went for the PhD as well. And um, 11 years of school later, here I am. <laughs> and <laughs> when I first started doing the research, I noticed that, you know, the majority of the study populations were young men. And so I was really interested in uh, getting more research done in female populations and learning more about sex-based differences, you know, if they exist or not. And when I, I came to do my PhD, one of the areas that I felt really needed to be explored further was the influence of female sex hormones on adaptations to training because it, it really wasn't explored but in the past several years there have been a lot of claims made you know in the broader fitness community that this is something that's very important so um, part of my goal here has been to do the work and and really uh, understand whether this is something that we we need to be mindful of when it comes to research and also when it comes to female athletes and um, women who are interested in gaining muscle and and strength. Amazing. Thank you for giving us a little bit of a background. And I'm curious to hear also how you got into writing for the mass and muscle and uh, strength, I believe, uh, application in science. Is that what it stands for? For the mass research review and how you how you came to write for them? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I've been writing for mass. It's a monthly applications in sports science. And this is a monthly research review that uh, 
fitness enthusiasts and coaches can subscribe to. And we write about current research and kind of hot topics, and we break down the science in a way that is um, easier for for the non-scientists to understand and also applicable. So we say, you know, what can we take away from this? And um, does how can we reframe our evidence-based approach to nutrition or uh, training or using supplements, et cetera. So um, I really excited to be part of that team along with Eric Helms, Eric Trexler, and Mike Zordos. I've known, I've known them for several years and uh, I've always been a big fan of the product. And um, I think it's a really valuable service that they're providing. So as, as part of my future and, and and not only doing research, but also really wanting to be part of a team that communicates science, I was really honored that they asked me to join the group. So I've been doing that now for, it'll be a year in February. Oh, amazing. Super cool. Um, beginning of this year, I sort of started a little group with some other coaches and other people that have some um, baseline knowledge of nutrition. And um, yeah, I subscribed to the mass research review in that instance and or in, in that facility. And um, we discuss some of the articles from the mass research review on a weekly basis, we meet, meet up online. Um, and that's how I kind of became aware of it and I really love all the content in there. So um, firstly, thank you for, for providing us with all um, the, the latest research in there and making it a little bit more comprehensible. Um, and yeah, you mentioned that one of the main things that interest you are the sex-based differences in, in training or in, um, I guess, how we respond to training. And I'm super curious about that because, of course, as we know, let's say 30 years back, it was, or maybe 40, um, no women in, in the weight rooms just doing cardio or maybe like their little band workouts or whatever, and just the men doing heavy weights nowadays, of course, or I think in the last 10 20 years perhaps it has shifted to oh no everyone should train train exactly the same um but i think i mean i i would love to hear from you uh, which one is is there a truth to perhaps both of them and um, should we still make some adjustments depending on whether we're male or female female uh, we ha i have read some things in the sense of women might be able to tolerate more volume in general they might be able to get away with more of that and whereas men might be able to get away with more intensity generally speaking so yeah perhaps you can shed a little bit of light on that for us i think that we are you know, men and women are probably more alike than they are different when it comes to to training adaptations. And so to that end, I'd say that following the kind of basic principles of a sound training program, are, you know, is really the most important. And when we veer away from that beca because of uh, sex or for really any other reason, then I think we're, we often are kind of missing the big picture. That said, as individuals, we see a huge variation in adaptations. So we see this in the lab, and I'm sure that you see this in your gym or working with your clients as well. You know, there are some people who 
will respond much better to a certain program or to training in general. And that is a, a you know huge function of genetics, which unfortunately, you no, know, we don't have much control over. Um, but re, you know, regardless of that, the, um, I think w- what I see is there's variability across the board. So regardless of, of sex, you're going to have some people who are higher responders, who are lower responders, some people who recover more quickly um, and therefore can train more frequently. And then, you know, there are, there are some people who are going to be on the opposite end of, of that spectrum. So I, I, as a, as a scientist and also as a coach, I don't like to make those broad generalizations about, um, you know, all women or all men, because I think that um, while we, we need to recognize there is a, a big variability in response across the spectrum, regardless of sex. And so that's why we can start with the literature, you know, just in terms of designing a program, what are the most important elements of a program? What's the most important um, elements that we should be paying attention to when progressing a program? Uh, but I I think that making an assumption that, you know, because you are a woman or because you are a man, then this, this, and that will be true is, is probably taking it too far because I think that we need to understand the the difference between individuals is probably larger than the difference between sexes. That's a very applicable um, or a very good takeaway for anyone listening as well. And I think it, it provides a lot of insight into, um, hey, okay, let's, let's treat the individual and let's not um, get too hung up about um, sex before we even look at their training experience or anything like that. Um, the other, of course, super interesting topic for myself, but also particularly like our listeners or generally clients tend to be women somewhere between 30 and maybe 55. Um, usually most of them and enjoy training of various kinds. Um, often when they come to us at first, they um, might have been doing a little bit too much hit, uh, maybe stressing their uh, their bodies a little bit too much on that front or doing some, some circuit classes, et cetera, before they then find their way to more of a structured um, strength training. Um, but I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, maybe like is what does the research say in, in the sense of do we need to make training adjustments as people enter maybe uh, like perimenopause, menopausal sort of state? Is there is there really anything that supports, okay, we need to train differently in order to support our hormones the best during that time? Um, yeah, I'd love to hear from about that. The perimenopausal population is really interesting and I hope more people will will study this but it's a really difficult group to study because it it's hard to um to standardize it and so when we do a, a scientific study we want to reduce as many other variables as possible to make sure that we're answering the research question and so part of that means we need everybody to be in the sa- at the same point in their sort of menopausal journey, if you will. And even just diagnosing someone in menopause, the the kind of clinical requirement for that is that you, ha- you haven't had a menstrual period for a year, but the it, they, they might be somewhere in that 
and not know it like um and so because maybe you go six months and then you have and then you have a period or you go another four months and then you have one so it the the timeline is really variable between individuals so for that reason it's very difficult to study um that being said we know that the hormones decline with age both in in, in men and with women and there's potential that the decline in hormones is going to contribute to the loss of of muscle mass and loss of strength. We don't have enough research in humans to say that definitively, but we we see that with aging, right? Um, and, and we do see it to a greater degree in women than in men. But the other thing that, that would be interesting is to see how this pans out in populations in the future, in, in, in generations that have been lifting weights in young adulthood and middle age. Because right now, the majority of the, the older individuals who are in their 70s and 80s, they did not lift weights when, when they were in their 20s, 30s, 40s. And, and, there, and a lot of them are not lifting weights now. But what we do see is that it's never too late to start. And if you are somebody who hasn't really lifted or, or exercised, um, in, in young adulthood or in middle age, and you start later in life, that's still really beneficial. But I think the most important thing that we can do as people in our thirties and forties who are not yet, um, in, in that postmenopausal state is to, um, kind of put as much money in the bank, if you will, in terms of building muscle now and, and, um, gaining strength now to kind of combat the, uh, the potential negative effects of aging that, 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 um, will influence your, the loss of, of muscle mass and strength. I love that. That's a really good way to put it in the sense of putting money in the bank <laughs> beforehand. Um, also very helpful. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious to hear about your approach with, with your clients, for instance, or, or what sort of clients do you tend to work with? Are they often also new to strength training or is it more experienced lifters? When I did more in-person coaching, it was definitely a, a spectrum. So I had people who were very new. Um, and then I had some people who were more advanced. I think well, working with people virtually, I really only have more advanced people because I think that if you're really new to the gym, you can really benefit from, from an in-person coach. It's really difficult to just learn basic lifting technique when you're not in there in the gym with the person. Uh, so that, that's sort of my general rule for, for the, who needs a virtual coach versus who can really benefit from an in-person. But I've, I've worked with both populations and it's, um, it, the, the journey is a little bit different. Um, if, I'm, I feel like I'm not answering your question. Did you just ask which population I worked with? Yes. Yes. Mostly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I've worked, I've worked with both. Perfect. Okay. Um, have you found it uh, difficult to get women that are reasonably new to, to, to strength training, or they might be coming to you in that perimenopause or even menopausal phase and that are new to strength training to, um, I guess, quote unquote, convince them to start lifting heavier, especially, I feel like the later people are, when they start, the more resistance they might have. Yes. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that women um, or who are newer to the gym find a group fitness setting much less intimidating. So it's, it's easier to get them into a, a group fitness class. Um, group fitness has improved, but there are uh, there are still a lot of classes that I think aren't really going to give you the benefit that that you would be able to get from more traditional resistance training. So I you know, I think it's you, trying to encourage them to actually use a weight that's challenging, um trying to encourage them to progress over time so that you're not just showing up and doing the exact same thing with the exact same weights every single week. Um, that's something that is, is kind of missing from, from the, the group fitness context, but I think in a kind of small group training environment, then that can be addressed. Um, if you have a, a small enough number of people that you can kind of give people some personal attention. And when you do convince people to try to to pick up something heavier, you'll often see that they surprise themselves. You know, uh, so much of it is is a mental barrier as um, as opposed to a physical one. And I think it can be really rewarding, not only as a as a coach but also for the client to to progress over time and see that get, that getting strong is is not only possible but it's fun and um, and it's helpful for daily activities and it makes them feel you know more independent. So I think that there are so many benefits to lifting weights and I, I see more and more women being open to it, but I think you're right that in a kind of perimenopausal population, there's still a lot of resistance to, to lifting heavier weights. Yeah, I I agree, unfortunately. And I, I think um the once people sometimes see the the carryover or start seeing the carryover as in like, oh, okay, I can now or feel more confident lifting those groceries into my truck or whatever it is. Um uh, that's when it starts becoming fun. They're like, Oh yes, remember those deadlifts that we did, they really helped me with, you know, picking up my my grandchild or um anything like that. And and I think um at least from what I see as being um more um talked about nowadays is that um during that time or postmenopausal, even premenopausal, um women that we do really benefit from that heavy lifting in addition with maybe some more like sprint work or or like um jump jump roping or like that higher intensity um state not not to um mix up with traditional hit training but um i i think often those populations are more inclined to do that moderate intensity sort of cruising for 40 minutes in whether that be in their circuit class or whether that's when they go for a run but just that um they feel like they're pushing themselves cuz they're getting a sweat on but it's not actually like a strong enough signal for any anything you know as you mentioned might not be the heavier weights might just be what they've always used because it's it feels quote-unquote hard enough <laughs> but um so yeah I like that it's becoming more more and more of a topic and people are starting to investigate it more as hard as it might be to research that particular um population as well um now something else that I saw is something you're you're interested in, and generally speaking, when it comes to 
menstrual cycle, but also perhaps um, hormonal birth control. I don't know, have you, is that something that um, you have specifically looked into, like how does hormonal birth control affect our training or, or just any kind of research around um, contraception? I have. And the the research that's out there is a bit mixed. So there are a couple of papers that show it being on hormonal birth control is actually beneficial to gaining muscle size and strength. And then there's a couple of papers that show the opposite so that it would be detrimental to gaining muscle size and strength. Um, in both cases, the effects are pretty small. So we're not going to, to expect a huge shift either way. And in all cases, there's a, a lot of variability, um, which is pretty much my answer to most of these questions. Um, but what I think um, there there's going to be some people who who might um, feel better on certain hormonal contraceptives than others, and so th there's a, there's a bit of um, it, it's not we're not just saying oh this is straight physiology here's the introduction of this synthetic hormone. And then here is how it's going to influence your, your adaptations to training. Um, so I would say based on the current research that we have, there really isn't enough evidence either, either way. Um, and if it's going to have an effect, the effect is going to be very small. So I, I would say that's, that it's certainly not a good enough reason to inform your decision to either go on or go off hormonal contraceptives. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I think that that's a, yeah, a, a good answer. And from what I have uh, read in mass or other um, articles, I'm very much in line with, with that as well. Um, in, in terms of your own uh, training, uh, I was saying uh, before we started recording that I had listened to some of your other podcast interviews. And in one of them, um, you were asked whether you ever have had um, aspirations to um, step on stage or go into bodybuilding and you mentioned um or, or yeah I would I would actually like to ask you the same question um just so our listeners um can hear what you answered and also your reasonings as to why <laughs> yeah I did think about it um several years ago when I was very into um the hypertrophy style training and the idea of of being in a bikini competition or figure competition was was very popular kind of in the the circle that that I was in at the time and it was something that I considered but the the more I saw what went into it and and kind of the aftermath of the of the the competitive um lifestyle I realized that it probably wasn't the best fit for me. So it was something that I, I decided not to, to go down that road. Um, and I, I found that there were a lot of competitors who ended up having really skewed issues with body image following competition, um, ha having issues with, with food, whether it, you know, disordered eating tendencies. And it, it seemed to, kind of take the fun out of training because you know you get so hyper focused on on all of the the minutia when it comes to tracking your training and tracking your nutrition and 
Um, so, you know, I have tremendous respect for the, the people that, that do it and for the coaches that promote competing in a healthy way and, um, promote a, a healthy mindset, both in and off season. But I think it's very challenging to, to do that long-term and especially for women. I think that's a really good answer. And the reason why it really um, kind of stood out to me when I was listening to your your previous podcast was because I, I mean, I have never uh, competed at the beginning of this year was the first time where I had considered uh, it before that I have come, I have more of a crossfit background or um sort of yeah just strength training because it's fun kind of like you were saying as well um but nonetheless i thought okay why not a new challenge i was kind of looking for for a new challenge and i considered it and then i realized well i i, I love eating too much <laughs> <laughs> And um, I mean, not to say, I think that there would be a lot of positive things or someone can learn a lot from that as well, even if it's just more appreciation for food, more, um, you know, awareness of other things or, or mindfulness and learning their own hunger cues and signals even even better. Um, but I, I also have spent many years, um, I guess, of working on hormonal health prior to this and um, fixing my sleep after doing shift work um, and, and just restoring menstrual health in general. And so I was like, Lisa, you've spent this much time, like really trying to be more, um, have more of a health focus. And is that worth it to you? My personal answer in that uh, instant was no. That is not to say that that answer might never change or that I, I don't think it's it's a great, it's a very fascinating sport to me from the outside. Um, but yeah, I think one has to be very, very aware of, hey, it's not just being in a glitter bikini on stage once and then you get to have your cheat or treat meal or whatever and you know that that's 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 the teeny tiniest fraction of the whole sport I think and um the more we can be aware of that beforehand I believe that the better it would be yeah I think that the um there the distinction that that you've made is the benefits of training, which are clear, uh, and the potential benefits of, of tracking your food, which I think are, are clear as well, because it's, it's just good to, to do that even for a short period of time, just to bring the awareness, um, and to, to see that you can change your physique. Um, but competing takes all of that to a, a, an extreme. And so all of the things that are, are positive, are so magnified and that it not only are are there you know some health implications with being that extreme you know to your point with there are many competitors that end up losing their menstrual cycles completely um and if you do if you do blood work everything is really out of whack when you're that lean and when you're kind of um about to to go on stage but it's kind of psychologically difficult to reconcile the fact that you can't stay there. You can't continue to look that way and also be healthy. And so that that's why I think that the kind of post-show 
journey is often completely neglected when you think about, oh, I'm planning my prep and I'm doing this and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm all leading, leading up to this day. But there's a whole other um, set of, of things to consider when you're coming out of that because you know, the hunger cues are all out of whack. Um, you're not in a good place hormonally. You've dieted down to a, a level of leanness that is unsustainable and you've received all of this positive attention for doing so. And so it can be really challenging to kind of come reverse out of that in a way that leaves you feeling physically and emotionally well. That's a... Very, very good point to make. Um, I, I, um, I can hear that you have a psychology background as well uh, from, from what you mentioned with your your um, bachelor studies. Um, is that something in terms of like the future research that you're looking at, or that you're perhaps already even doing? Um, yeah, what is what's coming up for you in that field, and is bringing more or combining more psychology with the exercise science, the um, research that you're doing at the moment, is that something that you are interested in pursuing as well? It's not something that I've ever done formally, um, mostly because the uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to include all of the kind of physiological assessments and then also bring in psychological variables. Uh, it, it just feasibly it's challenging, but I think that the psychology is, it is really interesting to me. I think it certainly has a place in fitness when we think about motivation, when we think about behavior change, when we think about body image, um, and with issues with related to food, which are, you know, very prevalent in the sort of fitness world, physique competing world, that th there is a huge psychological component to that. So I think it's definitely something that that is of interest to me. And it's something that I think coaches should be really mindful of, uh, because there will be times where you're communicating with a client or you're not sure whether you need to kind of push a client or pull back a little bit. And, um, the, those are, those are all really um, components of psychology that are going to factor into an individual's fitness journey or the, the kind of coach client relationship. Yeah. Um, really, really interesting with regards to, differences in motivation and habit change for sure. Um, one of the latest um, mass articles that I had read was, I think it was titled, um, When Just Wanting It Isn't Enough or something like that. Um, I really like that. And it basically went um, over the, the various stages that someone might be going through as they're considering starting a, a journey with the pre-contemplation and contemplation, et cetera. Um, and then of course, what we're, we're needing to provide in the sense of um, accountability but at the same time also them having yeah motivation and, and drive and and I'm curious to hear about um like when you're coaching or when you have been coaching I don't know how many clients you have at the moment but when you were coaching your your clients and and maybe you also came across that that someone might have said oh, I'm not motivated to do xyz today or um I just I I had an off weekend or whatever as 
people um, come off, off the track, so to speak. Um, what were your main tools as a coach to nudge them to get back at it or to, um, I, I guess, foster or facilitate habit change? I think the reason why the client it has a certain fitness goal is really important uh, in terms of the sustainability for that. You know, you see people who are purely driven by uh, a number on the scale or uh, losing weight for their wedding or something like that, where it, it's um, it's very much this external factor that is is driving them to to come to the gym. And that kind of motivation tends to be short-lived because it's it's a, this ex extrinsic factor and they're not internally motivated, intrinsically motivated to do something. And they're also just looking at, at a, a, something very short-term. And in, instead of thinking about, oh, like I feel so much better um, when I'm going to the gym three times a week or my focus is better after I exercise or I, I'm doing this for my longer term health because I know the benefits of exercise. And uh, all of those things tend to be longer lived. And they're, they're, all, they're also along the way, there's just sort of a, a habit formed that means, okay, now this is part of my routine and this is part of something that, that I, I do regularly. And so I no longer have to motivate myself every single time I go to the gym because that's exhausting. I mean, you think about, um, if, if every decision that, that we made every day was fueled by motivation, um, we would, it would be really hard to get things done, but there are certain things that we do habitually, like brushing your teeth in the morning, um, that are, you don't have to be motivated. That's just part of your routine. That's what you do. Um, and so I think when exercise can become part of that routine and you, and it's no longer this sort of, oh, like I don't want to, but I'm going to, and I'm going to make myself, then it it's much easier to sustain the, in, in the long term because you're not just focused on, oh, I need to lose 10 pounds so I can fit in that dress three months from now. And then after that, like exercise has no utility in my life. Those, those are the most difficult clients to work with because those goals are so finite and they're, they're, they're the ones you're going to lose. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I found the same thing as well as, um, even if you manage to reach the goals with them, um, oftentimes, and they're the ones that yo-yo back, because again, as you said, said it might not be sustainable for them, or they didn't, it's just didn't um, look at things as in like, this is the new person that I am, this is what I do now, and it was just a means to get them to to their, their goal. Um, the last question I have for you, because I want to make sure I respect your time as well, but the last question I have for you amongst all your research and also coaching experience, is there something in the nutrition realm, meaning like particular macros or supplements or whatever, where you did actually observe some, uh, let's say like sex specific differences in the sense of that was a little bit working working a little bit better for women rather than men or there I can simply 
even if the data don't support that, but I can simply observe a general preference towards, you know, whatever approach it might be in the sense of micro distribution, like anything that comes to mind. Mm. From a from a scientific perspective, not really. Um, from a coaching perspective, I've found that some individuals just tend to do better it with a look lower carb, higher fat, or higher carb, lower fat. Both did I did I say that right? Um, so yeah, just in in terms of that, and I would I would tend to leave the like set the protein and then leave the the carb and fat distribution up to the client. But I have worked with some people where we've deliberately tried both for a longer period of time, and um, from a fat loss perspective, I have found that some people just do better on one kind of a split compared to another. And I, I don't really, there there isn't a a good scientific explanation for that. That would be something that's difficult to study. Um, and I, I think that again, it just speaks to the variability between individuals, but if the, the science is a starting point and that's why coaches are really important. Um, because it's it's super it, it's it's super important to know okay this has a scientific basis and so you're not going to prescribe something that is not rooted in kind of the the basic principles we know about nutrition and about training but there are some things that we don't know or there are some things that are going to apply at, at to the broader group, but maybe not to one specific individual. And so there you need to kind of go off book a little bit. Um, So I think that the best coaches are able to find their, the basis of, of their work coming from the science, but they're able to be kind of reactive, um, with that particular client in making adjustments along the way for which there might not be a scientific reference for every single decision you make. Sometimes you're, you're just working within the the data you have for that one individual. And so that, and that's not, that that's still being evidence-based because there, there are certain things that, that are um, just going to be, specific to that to that individual and there are decisions that you might make for one person that you wouldn't make for another person so we 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 need to understand that that you know both can be true and the science can say one thing but you can make this decision as a coach based on your experience with a particular client in a particular setting that's a really good answer. And I think especially when it comes to that fat and carb distribution, that's such a good point to just um, really work with the client and on that front or let, let the client even um, take a little bit charge there as long as we're meeting some baseline values, especially when it comes to fats. Um, I think meal frequency is another one where 
you really can't pinpoint it and just generalize, oh, women tend to do better with more frequent, smaller meals and men with whatever fasting or larger meals. And it, it's so individual. I think even just when it comes to hung perceived hunger, some people hate having larger meals and few of them per day and other others the other way around. So um, no, really, really good point just to really make sure to stick with the um, scientific foundations, but then at the same time, individualizing the, um, the fine tuning um, to the, to the person that we're working with. So thank you so much. Yeah, for and I think that prefer personal preference is a huge piece of this. And totally. if, especially if you want somebody to adhere to your program, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. whether it's the, the training that you're suggesting the exercise selection, the frequency, um, or the, the carb fat distribution, the meals, you know, if, if somebody hates their diet and they hate their training, mm -hmm. even if it's, you know, the most evidence-based program, they're not sticking to it. So you're not doing your job as a coach, um, you know, personal preference has to come into play at some point. 100%. Yeah. Because as we know, adherence is, is really the biggest um, thing. <laughs> Um, yeah, again, thank you so much for everything you have shared with us. We can uh, learn a lot from you. And I just generally thank you for, um, I guess, uh, creating more research or facilitating more research um, with more women and particular with particularly with difficult situations, perhaps with, with women um, as well. And uh, if someone wants to learn more from you, aside from uh, subscribing to Mass, where can they find you? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed our chat. And the listeners can, as you said, check out the Mass Research Review and also follow me on Instagram at laurencs1. Perfect. I will also link that in the show notes. And um, yeah, once again, thank you for your time. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, or share the episode on social. Very much appreciated. You can also follow us on Instagram at nutrition coaching and life or head to our website www.nutritioncoachingandlife.com where we provide more valuable content have a wonderful day now go out and work on your best self